Well friends, it's wonderful to be with you again this morning eh, as we continue in our series of the attributes of God. Our series is entitled God Is. It was wonderful to hear from Nigel Heath last week that God is omniscient. And today we're going to be focusing in eh, 1 John in chapter 4. We'll be reading from verses 7 to 21. God is love. Shall we just come and bow our heads before the Lord. Lord, it is marvellous this Sunday afresh to gather as your people, again in our own households, but gathered in one spirit, gathering around your word and your truth to worship your holy name and to open the scriptures together. Lord, would you speak to each of our hearts? Would you give us a fresh revelation from your word this morning of your love? Of what it means that God is love and how that impacts our life. Lord, we thank you that your spirit is upon us and with us. And most importantly, dwells within us. Amen. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to drill down a little bit into love. And for the third time in 1 John we have the subject of love. This doesn't mean, of course, that John ran out of ideas and had to repeat himself, but it means that the Spirit, who is inspiring John in his writings, presents this subject again to show us of its importance, to take us to a deeper level than the previous two examples in the book has. And here in these verses, we get to the very foundation of the matter. Here we discover why love is such an important part of a life that is genuine, that is rich, and that is real. Love is a valid test of our fellowship and of our sonship because God is love. Love is part of the very being and the very nature of God. And if we are united to God through faith in Christ Jesus, we share his nature. His nature is love. And love is the test for each of us as believers to the reality and to the condition of our spiritual life. Do you know, if you're climbing a mountain, maybe not so much these days, but if you're in a rare part of the world where there's no phone signal, or in the good old days, you need a compass. A compass that will always point to true north, to help you know your course. Why a compass? Because it shows us direction. Why, how does a compass point north? Because it is designed to respond to the magnetic field that is part of the Earth's makeup. The compass is responding to the nature of the Earth. And so it is with Christian love. The nature of God is love. The grounding point for us is love. And a person who knows God and has been born again of God will respond to God's nature. As a compass naturally points true north, a believer must naturally practice love because love is the nature of God. This love will not and will never be a forced response, but it will be a natural response that will flow out of gratitude from our hearts. So I'd like to touch on three things this morning. 
what God is, what God did, and what God is doing. So firstly, what is, what God is. God is love, verses 7 and 8. God is love. This doesn't mean that love is God. Because in a way, two people can love each other and it does not necessarily mean that their love is holy. It has been accurately said that love does not define God, but God defines love. If God is love and God is light, therefore his love is a holy love. And his holiness is expressed in his love. His love for his creation, his love for his people, his love for his son. All that God does expresses all that God is. Even his judgments are measured out in love and in mercy. We know that so much of what we call love in our modern society bears no resemblance or no relationship to the Holy Spiritual love of God. Yet frequently we hear, God is love. As if this is some kind of justification of abhorrent sin that could not be any further from the righteousness and the holiness and the love of God. In verse 10, we read, in this love, which could also say, in this way is seen the true love. We're being set the standard here. We're being shown the way of true love. Because there is a false love, a kind of love that rejects God, that loves to reject God and his ways. But love that is born from the very essence of God must be a spiritual and holy love. Because God is spirit, God is light, as John refers to earlier in his book. And as we read in Romans 5, 5, the true love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Love, therefore, is a valid test of true Christian faith. Since God is love, and we claim to have a personal relationship with God, we must then, out of necessity, reveal his love in how we live. A child of God has been born of God. And therefore has been born into something of the divine nature of God. Since God is love, Christians ought to therefore love one another. There, there is no question in that logic. But not only have we been born of God. But also we must know God. Do we know God? The verb that is often used, that is used in Genesis 4, to know God, is a similar verb that is used for the intimate union of a husband and a wife. To know God means to be in deep relationship with him, to share our lives with him, to enjoy his love. 
This knowing is not simply a matter of understanding in our minds, but it is a matter of comprehending and knowing truth, experiencing God's truth. We must therefore in this light understand that whoever does not love does not know God as we read in verse 8. We must understand that through this. Certainly and of course many unsaved people love their families. They love their friends. They love their jobs. They sacrifice for those that they care about. And no doubt many people have an intellectual understanding of God. So what then do we lack? If we are to love one another, surely that is all we need. But they lack that personal experience of God. To paraphrase verse 8. The person who does not have this divine kind of love has never entered into a personal experiential knowledge of God. What he knows is all in his head but has never gotten to his heart. Who and what God is ought to determine who we are. This isn't just applicable, of course, to God is love, but it is applicable to all of the God is statements, to all of the attributes of God. Who God is must determine who we ought to be. Who God is. Secondly, we look at what God did in verses 9 to 11. I'll just read them for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, because God loves, he must communicate. Not only in words, but in deeds. Because true love is never static. True love is never inactive. God reveals his love to mankind in many ways. He has geared all of creation to meeting the needs of mankind. Until, of course, man's sin brought creation under bondage. Man had a perfect home in the garden in which to love and to serve God. God's love was revealed in the ways that he dealt with the nations of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read, The Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. God loved in the beginning. God is continuing to love. And ultimately we see the greatest expression of God's love to all of humanity in the death of his son. So wonderfully summarized for us in Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us. And that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know the word manifest means to come out into the open, to be made public, to be seen. 
It is the exact opposite to hide or to make secrets. You see, in the old covenant, God was hidden behind the shadows of rituals and ceremonies. But in Jesus Christ, the life was manifested. Why was Jesus Christ manifested? Why was the Lord Jesus unveiled, come out into the open, made public? John tells us in chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no more sin. We're also told three verses later, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Where did Jesus take away our sins and destroy the works of Satan at the cross? Of course. God manifesting his love at the cross when he gave his son as the sacrifice there for our sins. The fact that God sent his son is just one piece of evidence as to the deity of the Lord Jesus, to the divine nature of the Lord's. Because babies are not sent from somewhere, but they are born into this world. Yes, as the perfect man, the Lord Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. But as the eternal son, he was sent into this world. Do you know, it's really important that we know this. But the sending of the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross was in no way prompted by our love for God or any previous generation's love for God. If we have that logic, we're completely the wrong way around. But his coming was prompted by his love for us. In verses 9 and 10, we read of the two purposes that are given for Christ's death on the cross. Verse 9, that we might live through him. And verse 10, that he might be the propitiation for our sins. The death of the Lord Jesus was no accident. But it was an appointment. He did not die as a weak martyr, but he died as a mighty conqueror. Jesus died that we might live through him, for him, and with him. Our desperate need as fallen man is for life. Because we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And it's that great paradox that Christ had to come and to die so that we may live. Do you know we will never, this side of eternity, probably the other side of eternity too, never fully understand the mystery of his death. But what we do know, as Galatians 2.20 tells us, is that he died for us. The death of Christ is described as a propitiation. Probably one of my favourite words in the Bible. It means an atonement or a sacrifice once and for all. The propitiation, the substitution of God is something that had to happen to be possible for us to be forgiven. God is love, therefore he wants to forgive and save sinners. 
How can God forgive sinners and still be consistent in his holy nature? Is there not a contrast here? How can we have a perfectly holy God accepting sinners, accepting those that are not holy? The answer is the cross. Because it is there, hanging on that tree, that the Lord Jesus bore the punishment for sin and met the demands of the holy law that no man throughout all of history, that no man in any time in the future to come could meet. But there also God reveals his love and makes it possible for us to be saved by faith. It's important to note that as we talk about love, the emphasis, as always for us, is on the death of Christ, not as much on his birth. Do you know what's wonderful? The incarnation of Christ, the fact that he was made flesh, is certainly evidence of God's grace and his love. But the fact that he was made sin underscores all of that for us. The example of Christ. The teachings of Christ, the whole earthly life of Christ, find their true meaning and their fulfillment. All of it was geared towards the cross. And in all of this, as it is, it is so important for us to constantly be progressing in our understanding of this love. To love one another simply out of a sense of duty is, is good. But to love out of appreciation rather than obligation is even better. This may be one of the reasons why Jesus established the Lord's Supper. The institution of communion. Where we break bread and we share the cup and we remember his death. How many people want their deaths to be remembered? We remember the life of one that we love and we try to forget the sadness of death. But it is not so with the Lord Jesus. Because he commands us, do this in remembrance of me. And soon, gathered, we will partake again as one body with one meal in this place. A true experience of who God is requires all of us. Our minds must understand spiritual truth. We must know the word of God. We must know what it is that God is saying to us. What he has done for us. The heart in response must love and appreciate all that he has done for us. And then our wills must act on it. We must do something about it. And that's what we see in this passage here. We're not just seeing law and drawn out theology of what you should believe in your head. We're not even saying, okay, you should love God and adore him. But he's also saying, okay, know God, love God, do something about it. Never can the love of God and our appreciation of God and all that he has done for us ever detach itself from what we are called to do. Do you know, the deeper we go in to the meaning of the cross, the greater will be our love for Christ the greater will be our act of concern for one another so we move into our third point what God is doing who God is what God did what God 
is doing, verses 12 to 16. God abides in us. God is love is not simply a doctrine of the Bible. It is not some obsolete fact, but it is an eternal fact that is clearly demonstrated at Calvary. God has said something to us and God has done something for us. God does something in us. We're not merely students that at the moment gather around the screen or gather in a building to read a book. We're not merely spectators as we gather to watch some kind of deeply moving event, but we are participants. Participants in the great drama that is God's love, that is God's plan unfolding out of all of history. I love this example. In order to save money, a college drama class purchased only two scripts of a play. And the teacher cut one of them up into separate parts. And the director gave each person their individual parts in order that they could start to rehearse the play. And as they came back together, nothing went right. After an hour of miscues and mangled sequences, the cast gave up. And at that point, the director sat with all the actors on stage, said, Look, I'm going to read the entire play for you. And he read the entire script aloud. And when he was finished, one of the actors said, So that's what it's all about. When we read these verses, verses 12 to 16, we feel like saying, So that's what it's all about. Because here we discover what God had in mind when he devised the great plan of salvation. God's desire is to live in each one of us. He's not satisfied to simply tell you that I love you. Or even to show us that he loves us. But God's desire is to live in us. Do you know, I found it fascinating this week, looking, tracing God's dwelling places as recorded in the Bible. In the beginning, God had fellowship with man in a personal and direct way. But sin broke up that fellowship in the garden. And from there, it was necessary for God to shed the blood of animals to cover the sins of Adam and Eve so that they might come back into fellowship. One of the key words in the book of Genesis is the word walked. God walked with men. And men walked with God, Enoch, Noah. Abraham walked with God. But by the time of the events that are recorded in Exodus, in Exodus, a change had taken place. God did not simply walk with men anymore, but he lived and he dwelt with them. God's commandment to Israel in Exodus 25, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And the first of these sanctuaries was the tabernacle. When Moses dedicated it, The glory of God came down and moved in to the tent. God dwelt in the camp. But he did not dwell in the bodies of the individual Israelites. 
But as we continue to read through the prophets, especially highlighted in 1 Samuel, unfortunately the nation continued to sin and God's glory departed. But God used Samuel and David to restore the nation. And Solomon built God the most magnificent of temples. And once the temple was dedicated, once again, the glory of God came to dwell in the land. But history repeated itself. And again, Israel disobeyed God, were taken into captivity. The temple was destroyed. One of the prophets of that captivity, Ezekiel, saw the glory of God depart from that place. Did the glory ever return? Yes, it did. The glory returned in the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The literal translation of John chapter 1 verse 14 is in the word, and became, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of God dwelt on earth in the body of Christ Jesus for his body was the temple of God. The fulfillment of the temple. But wicked men nailed his body to the cross. They crucified the Lord of all glory. And this is part of God's plan. As Christ arose from the dead, as he returned to heaven, sent his spirit to dwell in men. The glory of God now, no longer needing sacrifice, animal sacrifice, no, no, no longer needing tabernacle or building of the holy of holies to be kept set apart from man. But God dwells inside those who believe. With that context, we can better understand what these verses are saying to us. God is invisible and no man can see him in his essence. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. By taking on himself a human body, Jesus was able to reveal God to us. But Jesus is no longer here on earth. So how then does he reveal himself to the world? How does God in the here and now reach out to the lost? One of the ways he does so is through the lives of his children. People cannot see God. How often have we heard, oh, if I could just see God, I would believe. If I could just catch a glimpse of him and know that he was there, I would believe. It's a bit of a false argument because how many people saw Jesus but still killed him? Men cannot see God. People cannot see God. But they can see you. And they can see me. This now is where this really comes into focus for us. Brothers and sisters, if we abide in Christ, we will love one another and our love for one another will reveal God's love to this needy and broken world. God's love will be experienced in us and it will be expressed through us. This morning, would we know the wonder and the privilege that it is of having God abide, live within you. 
Do you know the Old Testament Israelites would look to the tabernacle or to the temple because that's where the presence of God was in that building. No man would dare enter the Holy of Holies where God was enthroned in all his glory. But we have the Spirit of God living within us. We abide in this love. We live in this love. And we experience the abiding, the indwelling of God in us. We read in John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. God's love is proclaimed in the word. God is love. Time and time again, we see a forgiving and a merciful and a graceful God that loves his people. And he proved it ultimately at Calvary. But here we have something that takes us a little bit deeper than that. That God's love is perfected in the believer. As incredible as it may seem, God's love is not made perfect in angels. But it is made perfect in sinners that are saved by grace. We as Christians now are the tabernacles in the temple in which God dwells. He reveals his love through us. What a wonderful reality for us this morning. God is never distant. God is never far because God dwells inside all of those who believe. All of those who know and love him. The doctor Campbell Morgan, a famous British preacher, had five sons. And all of them went on to become ministers of the gospel. And one day a visitor stopped by their house and asked a personal question. He said, which of you six are the best preacher? And the sons in a united answer said, our mother. Of course, Mrs. Morgan had never preached a formal sermon in a church. But her life was a constant sermon on the love of God. It was the life of a Christian who abides in God's love. Because God's love is such a potent witness. Because that is the witness of God in this world through us. Men cannot see God, but they can see his love moving in our deeds. Of our helpfulness, of our kindness, of our graciousness, of our mercifulness. What an ungracious world we live on. Social media is one of the most brutal places that there could possibly be. One person does one thing wrong and that's them tarnished forever. Because people are free to write what they like and say what they want. Would that not be us friends? But would we be people who are full of grace? Because our saviour has shown grace to you and to I. Who are we to ever cast that first stone? Who are we to ever condemn others? But would we be people that extend graciousness, mercifulness, helpfulness, kindness, and goodness? Would we be a people who care so deeply for our brothers and sisters? So deeply for those in this world who do not yet know him and live in darkness? That no matter their background, no matter what they have done, no matter who they are or what they have been through, our first priority is to love them. Because he first loved us. 
If there is somebody that comes to your mind this morning that you hate, that you have a strong disliking for, go and sort it out. Go and deal with it. God is love. We as his people, as imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ, are called to be people who take that love and live it out in this world. You know, Jesus didn't simply preach the love of God, but he proved it by giving his life on the cross. And he expects us, his followers, to do likewise. If we abide in Christ, if we know Christ and love Christ and make our home in Christ, we will abide in his love. If we abide in his love, we must share this love with others. The sin that has been forgiven in me is far greater than any other person in this world could ever sin against me. Whenever we share this love, whenever we extend this kindness, this goodness, this graciousness, this mercifulness, this love, it is proof in our own hearts that we are abiding in Christ. In other words, there is no separation between our inner life and our outer life. There is no difference in our understanding of what we know of God and our actions that come from that. The more we love God, the more we understand the love of God. The more we understand the love of God, the easier it is for us to trust in Him. Because after all, when we know somebody more intimately and we love them sincerely, we have no problems putting our trust in them so friends as we Christians on this walk on this pilgrimage as we grasp something of the wonder of his undeserving and gracious sacrificial love for us we are compelled to love one another when we find it hard to love one another our great need is to return to the cross and be humbled again Love so amazing, so divine, that demands my soul, my life, my all. If we fail to love one another, we make Jesus and his gospel look like something that fits right in with the rest of this world. It puts a mark over our Christian profession. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. God is love. What God did, he sent his son. What God does, he abides in us. Friends, would we never lose sight of that? Would we be slow to anger, full of grace, full of mercifulness, full of helpfulness and kindness and goodness? Because our slates have been wiped clean. And we want to extend that love to all. Shall we pray? Our Lord and our God, we thank you that we can come into your presence this morning. We thank you for the wonderful reality that you are love. That love is defined by you. That the greatest illustration of an example of love was shown to us in the Lord Jesus. 
Lord, would we proclaim his death? Would we proclaim that there is hope in the resurrection? And would our life seek to mirror that love? Would we love others, no matter how hard they are to love, in the way that the Lord Jesus loves each of us? Broken, broken sinners but welcomed into your kingdom because you are love. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness throughout all of history. And this week, Lord, would you help us to love just that little bit more, that little bit more gracious, that little bit more merciful, that little bit more helpful, that little bit more kind. We pray all of these things for Christ Jesus' sake. Amen.